It's another um, beautiful Tuesday afternoon here in Johannesburg, and I'm sitting here with my colleagues Andrea Teagle and Ranjani Munasami, and we are here to discuss the news. And I can't think of many better things to do on a on a nice summer afternoon. Oh, actually, I can. Well, you can be you know pulling, sitting watching TV and pulling your hair out watching the Oscar trial. That's true. That's um, always an option. Well, 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 well a, a worse gig today is actually our, our poor colleague Greg Nicholson, who is in Pretoria at the Oscar trial. Yes. Um, he is replacing uh, Rebecca Davis, who usually does it, but she's in London. Um, what are you doing in London, Angie? She's sitting in a room f- with a thousand other people, uh, writing a blog on the Oscar <laughs> trial. <from laughs> <laughs> so I don't think she's in a much better place than Greg is. And then our other colleague, Marianne, is in uh, the Western Cape High Court um, at the Sri Divani trial, also suffering and getting shocked with uh, with the developments there. <laughs> so I think out of uh, out of the lot of us, the three of us have it best. Eh? Now, what do the poor the poor foreign correspondents do? There's only one of them and two. Sensational trials going on that they need to cover. I know. Mm. Well, it looks as if um, uh, Oscar is the hotter news because those that were at uh, Divani last mm. week have bailed and and they're back in Pretoria. Interesting. Yes. Even though there's much more interesting things going on in Divani right now, aren't well, there? Well, Divani is more interesting in that uh, there's complete denial mm. of his involvement, um, you know, and there's also salacious details, you know, Very about, salacious. about his sex life, which according to Marianne has just been ruled inconsequential. Um, to to the murder case, but um, the the thing is that uh, with with Oscar, it's just it's so many factors colliding. You know, it's it's the celebrity, it's beautiful people, it's the intrigue, uh, and it's the fact that you know the, this country has been so swept away by it. So. It is. It's a story for the ages, yeah. and we will be hearing about it for ages, <laughs> no matter what happens in the sentencing today. Now, Andrea, I believe you have a fact for us. You uh, like facts? Yeah, I do. Um, so I read about this earlier today and thought it was pretty interesting. So you know how we all have, uh, you know, this image in our minds of the ancient Greek temples and statues, um, and you always think of them as gleaming white and and very sort of noble looking in their in their in their starkness. Um, and in fact, you know, I was looking it up, and apparently they all used to be covered in really bright paint, um, which really kind of doesn't gel with how you think about you know classic no, architecture. All, actually. And you know all the the architecture which has come subsequently and has been modelled on that, you know, really has got it wrong. It should be covered in red. <laughs> red was apparently one of the favourites. It was typically red and blue, and sometimes black. Mm-hmm. And um, the Parthenon uh, apparently was shades of of blue and also um, incorporated some green and red and gold. And um, th- you can actually you can Google some of the images where they've tried to recreate mm-hmm. how the statues particularly used to look, um, and it's it's very very different. I mean, they look they they sort of transformed into almost like colorful puppet like figurines, you know, as opposed to these really grand because, because that elegance mm. that they have is so much to do with their yeah their, 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 their whiteness. That, yeah, definitely. That, you know. um, but obviously, very uh, you know, much more visually arresting perhaps in in the color. Um, yeah, so they discovered that through shining like ultraviolet light and you know using chemical. So this is bad news for all the nouveau riche um, in Bedford View who are going to have to <laughs> right? do yeah. a bit of repainting pretty soon. I mean that place, yeah, <laughs> might right. actually be an improvement. Now, Andre, you also have another story that you've been looking into for us about uh, the church and homosexuality. What's going on? Um, yeah, so. This week, there's been um, a meeting happening um, in Rome, um, which looks at 
the family in particular and topics like marriage and homosexuality and the use of contraceptives. And obviously we know that traditionally the church has been very, very conservative on all of those. In fact, very far behind the opinion of most of its its followers, particularly in the West. You know, most people really just disagree that contraceptive is evil, um, just mm. outright think that they've yeah. got it wrong. So I think like the, the discussion that has generated is important in trying to move the church um, sort of more in line with public opinion now. Um, so what's been interesting, you know, in some of the discussion that's come out is there's been a sort of a more positive slant um, in terms of like the, um, the view on homosexuality. Um, and actually what, what the report by the bishop said was um, conceded that homosexuals had gifts and qualities to offer the Christian community, which, I mean, I don't really like that wording at all. It seems very sort of condescending. Um, but then they, they hurriedly added that, you know, that's not, that they're not denying the moral problems connected with homosexual union. So they're not shifting their stance, but it is slightly more positive. Um, and there have been senior clerics who've um, called the, for the church to, to, you know, adopt a more progressive stance. So I think is, yeah, is the difference is the difference that that they're sort of not saying anymore that we're not implying that gay people are evil. They're saying gay people can be good people too, right, but what the they happen to be doing is, is wrong. Right. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that's nat- it's natural. <laughs> it's actually <laughs> about good or bad. I think there's a slight change in the language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we have on the line Father Russell Pollitt, who is a columnist for the Daily Maverick, and uh, he has been writing on these issues for us. Uh, um, Father Russell, are you there with us? Yes, I am. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. Welcome. Um, we've just been discussing the developments at the Synod uh, happening at the Vatican uh, uh, for the past uh, week. And um, yesterday there was some news coming out from there that was indicating that there is a slight change of tone of language and a discussion. Can you tell us more about that? Yes, I think um, I think that's important, that there's a, there's a real turnabout on the way that things are normally discussed by the church. Uh, last week in the Senate itself, we heard how, uh, you know, words that the, that the church often used to describe people were kind of, the, the church, the people at the Senate said, well, these words are, are not relevant. They are, they're not a good way of talking about people and, you know, that we should move from that. And then yesterday there was a bit of a bombshell because I think it's not just a question of changing language. But, for example, speaking about people, which, you know, there's always been a difficulty within the church, they said, uh, well, we need to change the language, but they also said things like uh, gay people should be welcomed and part of the church and their gifts and talents should be recognized. So there's a significant shift there, I think which I suspect many church commentators were not expecting. Okay, so the Catholic Church has about 1.1 billion followers around the world. So how significant is the Synod? Um, and um, do you think that the, that the outcome will have any kind of lasting effect on the life of the church? I think the uh, Synod is very significant because I think that there's been a huge gap in people's lived experience of family life and uh, what what the church proposes. And I think that many people felt that the church was rather uh, idealistic and unrealistic about what it was asking of people. So the idea behind the synod was the Pope really saying last year, this is a real concern of his, and him calling the synod. So, yeah, I think many, many people were were, were very uh, hopeful that things would change and 
that the church should reassess some ideals and uh, some maybe of the unrealistic ideals as people thought they were. And so it's been watched very carefully by a number of people, especially people who are divorced and remarried, mm-hmm. especially gay Catholics, especially couples maybe who are living together, cohabitating, as is, is the word is used. Um, the church was frowned on all those things. And I think that we need to face the reality that these things, as society has developed, as people have uh, you know, been more open about these issues, they've always been there. But we can no longer speak about them in the way that we have before. And hopefully, also, there'll be a change in the way that processes take place. There'll be a change as well in the way that uh, the church does things. I mean, significantly, in the, in the language that's used, he talks about, um, in that document yesterday, he talks about acknowledging the commitment that partners make to each other. So it's mm-hmm. not just simply uh, married people, but it's saying partners. Well, that opens the door to all sorts of things. You know, when you talk about the commitment of partners, and we're not using the word marriage, mm. I think that mm. there's a strong hint there about the direction in which this is moving. Father Russell, I've, I've got a question. I've, I've been very intrigued by the record so far of this current Pope. He's received a lot of praise for um, pushing the church towards a more sort of reformist direction. But it, it slightly worries me that, that the church, I mean, it's such a big institution. It, it's There are so many priests, so much clergy, so much administration, and yet it seems that one man at the top is able to exert a huge influence on its direction. Is the Catholic Church really dependent on, on, on just the Pope's will, or, or is it bigger than that? No, I think it is bigger than that. I think what's happened is that uh, in the previous papacies, Benedict and John Paul II, people didn't feel freedom to speak about these mm. issues. And although many bishops in different parts of the world were facing these issues, were talking about these things, uh, Rome was was mute, and Rome was closed to even listening to or maybe even willing to discuss these issues. What happened under Francis is that he has said, okay, let's have a frank and open discussion about these things. And so I think all that's happened is the conversations that that have been happening around the world by clergy, by bishops, by lay people, I think now people feel a certain uh, freedom to speak about them in a public forum where they know that uh, some uh, sort of uh, person from the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, which is almost like the watchdog of Catholic doctrine, is not going to be sent after them. So yes, the Pope exerts influence, but I think what has happened is that he has opened up this discussion. And this has also caused a lot of problems for him within the Church. I mean, it's not simply that everyone's saying, oh yes, uh, we, we enjoy what the Pope is saying, and we, we hold to it. I mean, he's certainly a lot of people have come out, even if you look at the news today, saying that he's mistaken, saying that this is the worst document the Church has ever produced. <laughs> so, you know, he's, he's got his opposition as well. Okay, so what happens if the Synod doesn't live up to expectations and doesn't come out with any major changes and things remain the same? Do you think that, you know, that, that disappointment would have an effect on the life of the Church? Oh, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure that they can backtrack now on what they have said. I think this is an interim document. I think that, uh, you know, we are still to see this week through, and this document will be discussed, no doubt, at length during this week. But I think we will see significant shifts. I think that if they don't do that, indeed, there'll be a lot of uh, disappointment, but there'll also be a loss of credibility. And I think the Pope's credibility, even at the moment, would be uh, under scrutiny. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it will have a, a very... And I, it's something to do with the trust of people. I mean, I think people feel that they trust now 
that something's going to happen to address some of the major concerns that we have faced as a church. And for them now to, to backtrack on that, I mean, we'd, we'd certainly not only, um, you know, lose faith, but also it's an issue of trust. Okay, and how much perspective has the African church brought to the synod, uh, you know, the African context and issues from here? How much does that impact on the discussions? Yeah, that's a very good question, because I have been rather disappointed by the level of discourse from the African bishops at the synod. In fact, there's just been two bishops, really, that have that have been in the public view, as far as I can make out, that have said anything significant, and that is a uh, uh, car- uh, cardinal from Nigeria, and also the Cardinal from South Africa, Napier, they mostly spoke about how a lot of the stuff in the pre-Synodal document uh, was not really concerned with Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, they brought up the issue of polygamy and said that this was a real concern in Africa uh, and that the rest of the church doesn't really understand this. They spoke a little bit about uh, the context of colonization and how many things like artificial contraception they feel have been imposed on African people. But it seems to me like they never really addressed the issues of Africa, that is, social, geopolitical issues, and how that impacts on families. Uh, so I was, I was rather disappointed. And also, like here in South Africa, we never, we never really sent much information to Rome. So mm. last year when the Pope called the Synod, he asked a questionnaire to be filled in by people all over the world. And those questionnaires were then forwarded to local bishops' conferences who collated the information and sent uh, the information with their representatives to Rome. Well, I learned, unofficially, that the bishops down in South Africa didn't collate anything and didn't send a, a document to Rome, but they said they were going as observers. Yeah, someone needs to get them to Af- do their homework, eh? <laughs> exactly. And, and I think this happened in a number of places in Africa, which is sad, because that means the voice of the church is not heard. Um, to what extent do you think that the outcome of the synod might change the conversation around um, homophobia in homophobia in Africa, um, given the influence of the church um, in you know sort of promoting an, an anti-gay agenda in a lot of countries um, here? Mm. You, I'm, I'm hoping. Think, yeah. I'm hoping. I'm hoping that it would have a significant uh, influence on doing that. I certainly mm. know in places like Uganda where where laws, which were certainly unjust um, against gay people, were, were implemented, it was very disappointing to hear that the church did nothing about that, mm. because that's a matter of justice. And even if the church holds that, uh, you know, for example, gay people shouldn't be in relationships, before you even get to that point, the fact that people were being victimized is an issue of justice, and the church should have spoken out. Mm. So I'm hoping that it will change the minds of, of, of people in countries in Africa, for example, where there is a homophobia, it's not only homophobia in Africa, it's all over the world. Mm. I, I, I encountered that even in the States. But I, I, think that, uh, I think that it might soften attitudes. I'm hoping that the bishops on the ground do take note of the things that are being said, because ultimately it's about the implementation on the ground. And, and although Rome says do this, do that, doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to happen. And also in a number of places you've got cultural factors to deal with. It's not just about what the church teaches, but you've also got cultures that you have to deal with. And so hopefully the church will also go about trying to influence those cultures uh, and have a more open-minded uh, approach to these issues. Father well, Russell, thank you. We're going to have to um, we're going to have to leave it there for now. Um, we have to move on to our next caller. We appreciate you to talking to us, though. You're welcome. All the best. Um, now we we were just waiting um, to, to get in touch with Greg Nicholson, who's at the High Court in Pretoria. 
Um, but in the meantime, let's let's go back to that other case that's happening here, the the the, the Dewanis. Um, and 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 the, the the judge ruled today that that this the fact of a sexual orientation is irrelevant to the case, and and it should not be discussed. It's an interesting one. Um, I mean, is someone's sexual orientation relevant to the crimes they commit? Well, I think it was re- irrelevant in, in as far as it goes to motive because that's the bizarre thing about this case is nobody could understand why this man would have married this woman, brought her on honeymoon, and then arranged for her to be killed. Um, and it seemed that the, the narrative of the, of the state's case was that he um, was a gay man trapped, uh, 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 you know, was forced into a situation where he had to cover his, his, uh, his lifestyle, uh, and therefore he had to marry this woman, and, but he couldn't kind of live with the situation and therefore had her killed. So that was their narrative. Now, if you think um, about the fact that th- that his sexuality is no longer in contention, the state was, is now going to have to to come up with a motive to be able to show why he would have arranged, why would he have gone to the extent hmm. of, of coming to a foreign country, um, uh, you know, hiring this hitman and, 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 and going through all this trauma. So, um, it, I, I don't know what the, what the state is, because I don't think they had a plan B. Well, um, uh, our, our correspondent there, Marianne Tum, said that when the, the judge ruled on this particular issue, the, the state's prosecutor, his face just fell. Um, clearly, it, it was a blow for the prosecution, and I wonder if they're going to be able to recover. Anyways, on to the next sensational court case in this country. Um, we have on the line with us Greg Nicholson. Greg, how are you doing? Oh, I'm okay. We're just taking a bit of a break for lunch and then back to court. So Oscar's back on again, and yeah, overjoyed about it. You've been doing a lot of this over the last um, year or so. There's been Oscar, there's been the Farlam Commission. Um, are you feeling like you're fully trained as a lawyer now? <laughs> <laughs> not, not quite, but um, I saw one of the recommendations from the Department of Correctional Services yesterday was for Oscar in his in his correctional supervision to also undergo law courses. Maybe Oscar Pistorius will be our next our next top advocate. <laughs> Maybe he could be our next correspondent. We we could get Oscar to cover yeah, right. De, cover Devani. Now that now that would sell newspapers. Not a bad idea, eh? I, I can see Sky News just jumping us. There's actually correspondents running around trying to ask him right now. <laughs> Greg, so what's what's happened today? Anything interesting? Yeah, there is. The day started with um, the cross-examination of Oscar's former manager, Pete Van Sill, who, who yesterday really sort of went out to, to bat for Oscar, just saying how charitable he is. He read about an 80-page document showing all the sort of charitable acts you know, he's done around the world with um, disabled children, sort of HIV-AIDS awareness, awareness around malaria, um, dealing with uh, icons like Sebastian Coe, Bobby Charlton and such. And then today, uh, Advocate Harry Nell for the prosecution um, put him under sort of sort of put him under a little bit of strain, saying, "Aren't these aren't don't all athletes sort of do all this charity work? And isn't it largely just linked to sponsorship and building your own brand? Mm. Would it be would it be smart to to sort of decline any of these offers?" And Van Sill said, "Yes, most athletes do do all this sort of charity work, and no, it would not be smart to decline any of these offers." Um, but then Van Sill sort of still continued and said, "Oscar is Oscar's." A bit of an abnormal case. He went a, sort of um, above and beyond what most athletes do, and he really did spend a lot of time trying to, particularly empower young disabled children, sort of paying on his, with his own money for um, for their prosthetics and things like that. And now, of course, the importance of this testimony 
is that Oscar has in the past been been a benefit to the community and potentially could be could be again not not in the same role of course but um but he has shown that he can be a benefit to the community so, so and since it, then it's been sorry go on uh, is the idea here that that if you you know if you've been a pretty good person before um <laughs> yeah it somehow mitigates yeah your action it, 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 it seems, seems strange as, as, as a lay person looking at this i don't really understand surely you know whoever commits a crime whether you've you know whether you've done your charity work or not done your charity work it's it's that crime that carries the sentence um i didn't realize no, not it exactly would, yeah tell tell us yeah no, no you're right you're right so if if we take for example a guy, Simon, a guy like you, you know, who doesn't do anything charitable, for <laughs> <him>. um, <laughs> no, so I think work, working the, the for the Daily yeah. Mavericks, my charity. Giving <laughs> <laughs> back. Yeah. I'm Cliff it does feel like charity sometimes. Um, no, so so the way it works is that that they do sort of look at what you've done for the community in terms and in terms of what you can have done, can done before, because it adds up to sort of character evidence about what sort of a person you are. And if we add that sort of stuff to things like. Uh, Oscar being a first-time offender, um, where, whether he's shown remorse or not, which his defense team are trying to say he has shown remorse, and and whether he can be re- rehabilitated, whether within if he's incarcerated in prison or something like house arrest, correctional supervision, it all we have to take all of that sort of stuff into an, to account. So it will it will count in some sort of degree to Oscar's benefit. I, well, I was watching um, a bit of the trial yesterday and today, Greg and. It just astounds me that uh, it 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 looks as if it's leaning towards um, that that he would he would get correctional supervision in, uh, instead of any kind of um, jail time. And uh, the arguments that are made to support this is is actually quite uh, bizarre. I think you know that he would battle in prison, he wouldn't be able to shower, and um, mm-hmm. you know those kinds of things. Uh, I I just find that you know if if you if you think about the South African justice system and the fact that it it rests on justice being done and being seen to be done and i don't get the sense that this is the overriding factor in this case um by the by the mm-hmm. evidence being led what do you think well first of all just a point on justice being seen to that seen to be done it's important to note that it's the, the sort of public opinion and public perception can't be factored into into the sentence what will be factored into the sentencing is what the public, what's in the public interest, what's good for the public. And that doesn't mean, you know, all of us on the blood, um, that's going to be taken into account, but sort of what's best for us. And that's, that's the court that will really argue that. But so, yeah, yesterday we saw the Department of Correctional Services, one of, one of their officials called, um, uh, his name is Moringa, I feel he's first name now. Joel Moringa. So, and Moringa, yes. that's right. And Moringa did argue that, um, in Oscar's case, because of these things, like he's a first offender, they don't think he's going to be violent again. Um, he's shown he had, he's already been through a lot of trauma. He's lost all of his business interests. Um, he's already paid somewhat of a price. And that be, and, and that in the future, they don't believe he's going to commit, commit a crime again. So, um, in the interest of trying to rehabilitate him, and this is one of the key things that these guys are focusing on, they're saying that he's the best way to rehabilitate Oscar Pistorius will be correctional supervision. Whereas if we put him into the jail system and, and we incarcerate him, it actually it actually might go against society's interests and actually make him worse off than he is now. So they want they're sort of saying things like that he has to go through courses, you know, sort of with dealing with anger and like I said, law, um, drinking no alcohol and then being sort of under under a type of house arrest where he could only go from home to work. And then then sort of that that um, testimony was backed up by by Annette Vachir today. Who, who said similar stuff, but she was the one who was more on this stuff that 
Um, you know, if he's disabled and in prison, they might steal his legs and rape him and he won't be able to shower and there's HIV AIDS in prison and things like that. And I think that's, that's a little bit, a little bit more, more circumspect. Mm. But she also did say that she, number one, she's seen that he's taken responsibility for action, his actions and shown remorse. And this is where the crying in the trial actually comes in. The crying in the trial actually sort of has been factored into this, this sort of evidence. And they're mm. saying he, she's shown remorse has shown guilt because of that, which I think is quite interesting. But He does look like a broken um, man from the outside. I mean, That's what, that's what every, everybody's saying, that he's this broken man, and, and the, idea of, um, the idea of sentencing him isn't to completely break him and to destroy him, but in fact it's to rehabilitate him. And, and, the, and the interest of the community uh, is in rehabilitating him, and that would be best served by, by a sort of correctional supervision, home arrest type of situation. But at the same time, I think... As we're hearing out for the prosecution, has been able to pick apart these arguments a little bit. Number one, the sort of the argument that uh, uh, he was saying that prisons prisons are over, overcrowded and there aren't enough um, therapists, so he wouldn't get the therapy he needs. Well, he sort of he sort of picked apart her statistics on that. She said she just got these numbers from some website that she can't name. Hmm. Um, the the idea that he's going to you know people are going to steal his legs and. And he won't be able to shower, and it's unhygienic. Um, of course, you know already that there's a lot of prisoners in there's a lot of people in prison who have disabilities, and they seem to be coping. At least, at least we haven't heard too many reports of them struggling. Um, and and of course, we know that Oscar Pistorius also is a celebrity prisoner, and he's likely to get treated a bit better than than some of the other prisoners. If you, um, Greg, but, if you correctional services, um, and you know, we know uh-huh. that there are problems with the prison system in this country, very serious uh-huh. problems. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't get a lot of attention because no one really cares about prisoners, but everyone's going to care about Oscar. Do you think if you run a prison that Oscar would be in, would you not want him to be there? Because actually, he's going to draw down the spotlight on, on how you do your mm. work, and, and they might not want mm. that. I'm sure it'll be a bit of a burden for whatever warden. Your call has been placed on hold. Please wait. <laughs> well, apparently, uh, Greg Nicholson has, has, has got a more important call. <laughs> Your call has been placed on hold. Please wait. I, I don't think he's even aware that, uh, <laughs> he's, that he's talking. Pla- yeah, <laughs> that he placed us on hold. But, um, well, well, let's let him believe that we hung up on him. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> yeah but you know what? The, this trial, I think, from start to finish has just, you know, kept this nation in grasp, but also has has brought so many societal issues to the fore. Um, you know, on on gender violence, on um, on the uh, on the South African uh, judicial system, and now on um, on on what exactly the correctional services system is supposed to achieve. And you know, we have a constitution that is um, you know humanitarian in nature. Uh, it 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 is aimed at nation building. It is a uh, aimed at respect for human rights, um, but on the other hand, there's the interest of justice, which is a big factor. Um, and when you look at the fact that there is a dead body uh, in this matter, you have a, um, a, a, a grieving family that is seeking some form of, um, of of justice out of this case. That it's not only Oscar; it's not about Oscar. And a large part of this case is 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 around the personality and character of Oscar Pistorius. And you can see it in the way the defense is running this whole sentencing hearing. Is that you know he's so magnanimous; he's given back so much to society, um, and that it, they're almost arguing that there should be a special case for him. Mm. Because when you look at the South African 
prison population, nobody argues, makes these kinds of arguments, you yeah. know, that it's unhygienic. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they'll be kicked in the head if somebody <laughs> gets told to judge and that. And Jenny, I, I mean, looking at the bigger picture, like whatever Oscar gets sentenced to, he's been convicted. He'll have a criminal record. He will serve a sentence that a judge has deemed fit for the crime. And yet we have these other issues in South Africa. Marikana springs to mind. Yes. Jacob Zuma springs yes. to mind. These are issues that aren't being held accountable in a court of law. Um, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, but you said that the, this is what I, I wrote about today, is that there's a, there's a general lack of accountability in this country. Um, and it, with, with the Jacob Zuma matter and the Oscar Pistorius matter, there is a deliberate effort to paint them both as victims of circumstance, that nothing that they have done have led them to the situation they find themselves in. So therefore you find within Kandla matter, for example, that you find NC MPs in Parliament tripping over themselves, trying to say, Jacob Zuma shouldn't be asked any difficult questions. He shouldn't be made to pay back the money because this happened to him. And the fact that he's, he and his family benefits is, uh, it doesn't really matter because they didn't ask for these, uh, for these things. You also have, um, the case with, uh, with his, with his corruption charges. Um, and, uh, you know, the, these things are forever hanging over him. But, um, and, and they're all, all these questions, uh, in, over the, in the weekend press, you, you, there were reports that he, Labeled uh, the, the corruption case against him as being part of a Western paradigm. So he doesn't even accept that anything wrong happened. And that's a fundamental problem with our society. It's what's wrong with the Marikana matter because it's, it's now 26 months since it's happened and there's not a single person who's been put on trial for Marikana. Um, and there's no demand from society for kind of any kind of justice for that. Those are, uh, those were 34 people like us, mm-hmm. citizens of this country. Um, and, and, uh, you know, they lost their lives at the hands of the police, the people who are meant to protect them. Um, and, and there, there's no kind of demand from society for any kind of accountability from the state. Everybody's just sitting through this commission and no matter what it finds, it looks like we're going to accept it. And now with this Pistorius case, um, he already has a lesser conviction than what was expected. Um, and now it looks that from, from the way the sentencing hearing is that, you know, he, he can get three years of house arrest, which means he gets to get up in his own bed, wander around his uncle's house and for 16 hours, um, uh, a month, uh, which is basically eight hours, um, uh, broken over two days. He, he has to go and clean a museum. That is outrageous. I mean, you know, I, I used to get worse punishment, like, you know, from my father for going late to school. And it's almost demeaning. I mean, you, you think that, that cleaning a museum is a punishment, and yet mm. that, is a, that is a livelihood for many people in this yes. country. Um, it's almost as, as no if you're saying that. No, yes, exactly. no. Um, I believe we have Greg back on the line. We do, we do. And so, I mean, just before I go back into court, I thought I might give you a little bit of a preview of what the prosecution's argument in, in mitigation of sentencing is. How old is likely to be? Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, you mean in aggravation of sentence, right? The prosecution. Yes, that's right, in aggravation of sentence. So, uh, Harry now has continued to talk about the the degree of negligence shown, saying that, and this is part of the judgment. And Oscar Pistorius got his gun, walked towards the bathroom with the intention to shoot somebody, put four bullets through a locked door, and he's going to argue that that is a very high high sort of degree of negligence, and and Oscar should serve maximum jail time. We're also likely to see, I think, one of the one of the Steinkamp family members, perhaps Reva's cousin, um, testify for the prosecution and and just talk about the carnage that's being that's that's run through the Steinkamp family now now Reva's being killed. Um, but but sort of we're sort of sitting on our feet to see what happens here. 
Thanks, Craig. Um, good luck today. Um, we're enjoying your reports. You're doing an admirable uh, Rebecca Davis impression while you're there. <laughs> Thanks, Simon. <laughs> um, all right. So that w- that was Greg Nicholson from Oscar. What else is on the agenda? Well, today? why don't you tell us about your trip to Mozambique? I believe you were there last week. <laughs> I was indeed. It was one of those uh, uh, working holidays, shall we, shall we call it? Okay. Um, Mozambique is going to have elections tomorrow. So I went up last week just to have a look around, talk to some people, see what is going to happen. And, you know, it's it's a fascinating place because in many ways it's very similar to South Africa. You know, you've got this, this liberation movement that became the ruling party and they've sat in power for the last uh, 30, 40 years. And the country, you know, it, it's, it's okay. It could be worse, but... The economic growth that they've got, and it's it's impressive economic growth, it's all staying in this little segment of society right at the top. And the lives of the people at the bottom aren't changing, and, and this is the majority. Now, what the ANC needs to watch for, you know, and ANC should be taking lessons from this, because actually what you're seeing in Mozambique is after all this time, the people at the bottom are starting to say, no. We don't want to vote for you anymore. Mm. We are not of the generation that fought the independence mm. struggle. We don't owe you any ties of blood or comradeship or history. We want a government that provides for us and you are unable to do so. So we are going to see who else we can vote for. And there are two other parties that are really in with a shout. Not individually, um, I don't think, but together they might just be able to pull off an upset. And the way Mozambique works is you vote for your president directly. So you cast your vote for that particular man, unlike in South Africa where you vote for the the, the parliamentarians and the party. So, And there's, there's, there's two rounds. So unless if the ruling party wins more than 50% in the first round, then they will be elected, finished, and cloud. If they win under 50%, even if they get 49%, and the two opposition parties between them get 51%, then it'll go to a second round. Mm. Um, And there'll be the the lowest-ranking opposition party will fall away. So now what that means is say one party gets 36 and the other party got 15. My maths is a bit Mm. shaky. That adds up to 51, (laughs) right? So the the smaller party will fall away. But then all those voters who voted for the opposition party, they're not going to change their vote to the ruling party. Mm. They're going to change their vote to the other opposition Mm. party. So if it goes to a second round, the chances of the ruling party losing are very, very high indeed. And this is going to cause a seismic shift in the way Mozambique works. But I think it's also a good wake-up call for the the um, uh, governments which emanated from liberation movements in Southern Africa. Mm. Because there is kind of um, uh, you know, an attitude that we can rule forever and that our, um, our liberation credentials will always carry mm. us through. But there's clearly, even in South Africa now, that the, the memory of apartheid is recede- receding. And um, also the glory days of the liberation mm. movement are also receding, you know, the, the memory of it. And now it's being muddied by the business of governance and everything else that comes with it. The, 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 you know, everything mm. that you can, you can, that comes with political office, uh, uh, you know. So, uh, and I think that, 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 that's exactly what the governments of, of Zimbabwe, of Namibia, of, um, uh, South Africa need right now is for somebody in the neighborhood to, to get a hard kick in the head. Yes. <laughs> it'll, it'll really be, I mean, let's think about it. In Sadiq, are all the, all the Sadiq countries ruled by their relative, their respective liberation movements? Yes, Botswana, Botswana, Namibia, Namibia. South Africa, Mozambique, 
Zimbabwe. Swaziland still a kingdom. Yeah. Lesotho, Lesotho's had a couple changes, but they're so small to be. I I, I love how we like just forget about <laughs> things. Like, well, they're good and bad sides of. It. I mean, we've forgotten about Lesotho, although it had like a major crash and burn in our well, neighborhood. Let, let's be honest; it's a province that we don't have to pay for. Yes, that's yeah. why we keep it around. Yeah, but the other the other tragedies also. I was listening earlier on that um, that uh, uh, former president of Nigeria, Olusegun uh, Abasanjo, was saying that people should give up on trying to find the girl. Because it's now six months mm. since they're missing, and he was saying that there's there's no possible way to find them, and I was horrified to find that he was saying that some of them are pregnant, and mm. um, you know that the, the, their families can't reclaim them; they're gone for good, and you know that that's also fallen off the international radar right now. Well, I'm I'm a little bit frustrated by the story actually, and this whole you know six months since the girls disappeared narrative that we're hearing today. For one thing, it took the international media. And took most of the South African media two months to realize the girls were missing. Mm. Okay, and I will say the Daily Maverick had written about it the week after. Like, if you're paying attention, you know this stuff happens. But no one was paying attention, and still no one's paying attention because hundreds of other girls have gone missing in northeastern Nigeria since that time. Mm. Hundreds of other boys have gone missing. Um, hundreds of people have been killed. That th- this was not one isolated incident mm. of girls being kidnapped. It, this is part of a much bigger picture of what's going on. So to, to, to almost make a fetish of this one incident is crazy. And, mm. and it's missing, what's the phrase, missing the, the words for the tree. Yeah. Um, but, um, I mean, there is, there is a different narrative for stories in Africa and, and, and stories elsewhere in the world. And I think that, that, that nothing demonstrates that better than the mm. e- Ebola story. Mm. Because 4,000 people have died. And now one person has died in the U.S. and one person in, in Europe. And suddenly it's a global crisis exactly. and there are all sorts of um, crisis measures being undertaken for it. Um, look, they, I, I think that there is more of a response now to get aid into the, the countries in Africa. But still, it's the way the story that is being told that I, that I think is the problem. And, and uh, you've got to look at the way that, that, that media is structured on the continent in particular. And I think that this, this Ebola issue, that this is a media problem. Um, international bodies, that, I mean, the World Health Organization declared this an international priority emergency, which is its, its highest level, um, three months ago. Um, the UN, the UN has been sending as much assistance as it can. Um, there has been an international response, but there hasn't been much media response. And mm-hmm. in Africa, the reason for that is is how we get our news about the rest of the continent, mm-hmm. and it's not from the continent itself. It, it all comes yeah. via wire agencies or foreign newspapers who they send correspondence to Liberia, if they do. Um, they write the story for their audience in Europe or America, and then we get it in South Africa. You know, And you look at every single print media in this country, almost all of the Africa coverage comes from wires or from mm. tie-ins with foreign publications. A- and this is a real problem because it's not a, a South African news editor sitting and saying, you know what, this is a big African story. We need to cover it. Mm. Because he's looking at the headlines coming in on his wire feed and, mm. oh, what, there's no Ebola headlines, so he doesn't put an Ebola story. It's as simple as that. But also, how much have African nations been dealing with this as a continental issue rather than leaving the countries uh, that, that have been afflicted to deal with it on their own? Because, I mean, I haven't heard any kind of strong mm. messaging from the AU, perhaps there is, and, but I'm not, I'm not getting the kind of rallying from all, all the countries on the continent on this. But, but, I mean, again, this is, this is part of it. The AU can issue as many statements as it likes, and it has. 
um, you only get that feeling that there's a, there's a huge response when you're seeing it in multiple media yeah, outlets. Okay. That's where most individuals get, you know, that's how they know what's happening. Mm. Um, and, and if no one, you know, it's that if it, I'm on with the tree metaphors today. <laughs> if a tree falls in the no forest and no one hears it, if the AU says something in Addis Ababa and no one reports it, have they really said it? It's that kind of conundrum. There has been a West African response. Um, they met very early on to try and, and come up with a regional plan to contain this. And, and, and it's kind of worked. Um, in terms of keeping it within Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia, there have been Outbreaks in other places, but those have been controlled. Um, the AU has responded. It's it sent, I think, something like a hundred medics and put in a million dollars, which is nowhere near enough. Mm. But also, it doesn't have the capacity. I mean, it simply um, doesn't have more money. But I also think this is a frightening story to tell. And um, I was with some foreign correspondents on Friday night, mm. and they were saying that um, the the international news agencies are battling to get people to actually go there because people are frightened. Photographers mm. don't want to go. They they really really frightened, especially after the the, the freelancer from yeah. the US contracted it. Um, and it's it doesn't have that kind of pull that you, you get from uh, you know the the, the war zone uh, cores- mm. correspondents. You know the, those who kind of move around the the war zones. For some reason, people would prefer being blown up and uh, you know, mm. being shot in the head yes. or beheaded to um, to going and covering this, this story because it's deepest, mm. darkest Africa. It, it's, it's an interesting one because I, I consider myself a, a risk-averse person. You know, If there's going to be a bomb going off, I don't want to be in the middle of it. You know? I want to be safely um, far away. I'll report on it, but from a distance. That's why I would never be a very good uh, photojournalist. Those guys have to take far too many risks to get the kind of footage they need. But assessing the relative risks of Ebola versus Syria, for example, Mm. Syria is violent and unpredictable, whereas Ebola is dangerous, Mm. but you know what the disease is, you know how to protect yourself, and you know what measures to put in place. Um, You can manage that risk in a way you can't in a war zone. Um, so I, I would definitely choose to go to Ebola <laughs> over Syria. Well, that being said, uh, from what I was hearing, that if if they if the people who do go there uh, have to have like fifty hazmat suits, because once you've taken it off, there's a way to take it off so that you don't contaminate yourself while mm. taking it off, and then there's a risk to put it back on again. So you may need to discard that exactly. and and, um, and and put on another one. So there's that. There's there's the dangers of uh, you know uh, of uh, uh, how to conduct yourself there. Mm-hmm. But there's also difficulties in getting there. I know Deborah Patter, for example, has been uh, she 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 is in Monrovia at the moment. But the route she had to take was like she had to go to five other countries to to have to get there. There, there are only we've looked into uh, the Daily Maverick. We've looked into this. Um, I would go if if someone would pay for me. Um, that's an appeal if anyone wants to pay for me. Um, and it, it is crazy that the flights, uh, the flight alone is something like 35,000 Rand. Wow. Um, and you have, there's only two airlines that are flying in. And so basically you'd have to go via Casablanca. Um, and to get to Casablanca, you have to take sort of a three legged trip anyway. And then once you're in Freetown or Monrovia, a lot of the hotels have closed down because they don't want to take the risk of, mm. of being open. And also mm. there's no business for mm. them. So there's only sort of one or two hotels in town, which are the expensive ones. So you're looking at two, three hundred dollars a night for the hotel room, and uh, you know, very, very quickly, if you go there for a week, and this is before any of the medical precautions. I mean, if you go there for a week, you're looking at a hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand rand, 
And that's huge money for any media organization. Yes. Um, very, very few can afford it. And we still have to it. have a Christmas party, Sam. <laughs> we have to have a Christmas party. <laughs> no, and, and, and that's, again, why um, only the big foreign international organizations are going. I'm very, very pleased that Deborah Pratt is going, actually. that That's good. Yeah. Um, um, but then also then, once you go there, how much of an appetite is there for the, the pictures and reports mm. coming out from there? Because... You know, people switch off after a while after they see yeah. people suffering in a tent and people walking around in the in in the Haskem suits. Uh, and you know, do you, do you feel? Do you think that maybe it's it's sort of too anonymous the stories that come out of there? I mean, you hear the numbers and all the people who are dying, and you see the pictures of people in pain. But like, we don't really know, or at least I don't, the stories of those those people. Mm. You know, what are their families going through? How do they feel about it? Um, I think those that those are the types of things which grip people. And also, you know, like the one or two patients in America who have come under media spotlight. I think people over there are interested because they can relate to the people, you know, and it, it makes it seem closer to home. But also because they're scared. Not, they're terrified that it's, right? it's a yeah. Of course, it's close. Yes. You know, and, and in to defend them in, in to some degree, you know, if there's a calamity happening in America or something. You know, we all care here to a certain degree, but as soon as there are a whole bunch of South Africans there, we care a lot more, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, that it is always going to sort of be the case when, when the stories aren't coming from the people it is, it is human nature. I mean, it took me, it took me a good couple of days before I realized it wasn't just 67 South Africans killed in TB Joshua's yes. building yeah, exactly. collapse. Yeah. You know, and obviously you know. we're very concerned yeah. about our own, you know, but, but, but on the other hand, that off. being said, um, for example, the Spanish nurse who contracted Ebola, do you know the, 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 the story of her dog then having to um, be put down and there were like almost riots there yeah. because people were trying to save the dog. Mm. I mean, 4,000 people mm, died. Exactly. And, you know, mm. this is not, uh, um, you know, uh, it's not about the dog, but it's mm. the fact is, is, is how so people... So disproportionate. Yes, yes, the, you know, is, the reaction it? to yeah. it is, is completely disproportionate. I was, at a, I was at a Medicine Sans Frontier as Doctors Without Borders conf- press conference this morning on Ebola. And... I mean, this is an organization that I know quite well. My wife actually works for them. So I I sort of get an an insight into their inner workings. And they are panicked. And Mm. to see some, you know, people like that, who they've dealt with Ebola, Mm. they've dealt with epidemics, they've dealt with civil wars and everything. They know their stuff, you know. These are old hands, and yet they are panicked. The situation is just beyond everyone's control. And if you do want to help... I think donating to them is the best possible way because they have the, by far the largest presence on the ground in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Um, and they're running a campaign at the moment called Tough Decisions, I think. And, and, and some of the nurses, what they were saying, and, and doctors, um, what was the one of, one of them was, was you have to, um, if, if someone comes in, you, you can't tell immediately if they have Ebola. You know, they might describe mm. the symptoms. You just have like a fever. So it's almost like a 50-50 for some mm. of them. Some of them it's obvious mm. and you admit them. Some of them it could just be malaria mm. or it could be Ebola. And there's, there's such a shortage of bed space. Mm. So you have to ration the bed space very carefully. So you have these doctors who have to then make a decision whether they think what you've described is Ebola Oof. or isn't Ebola. And if they get that decision wrong, then... The person goes back out into Then the either that person yeah. goes back out and infects people or... A healthy person comes into the facility mm. and gets infected. I mean, imagine the weight of responsibility on on what's a it's a subjective test. You, there's no, you know. I was I was watching on Sunday night and I was flicking through all the news channels and there was such a panic in the U.S. about um, this uh, other healthcare worker who contracted mm. it from uh, the the Liberian man in in Texas. 
and they were calling it. I mean, uh, the strap on every single um, uh, the screen was breach in protocol <laughs> because they couldn't figure out how she picked it up because mm. she was fully dressed in the suit. Sounds there like a so Jason su- Bourne movie. Yes, I know. It, it was. It was, I, I mean, you wanted because it was just so much panic. You know, you mm. have all these correspondents lined up outside this hospital. How could this have happened with all the strict um, measures that were taken? And what what's even scarier for them was that the the guy who died was in contact with about. 50 other people mm, wow. so you know now there's a complete mm. panic of not only those 50 people but the, the people, people those 50 people then so you know and that's I, how it goes. it's exponential yeah, it's just it's suddenly, suddenly just yes Mm. And I mean, uh, and that's a scary. It's it's so easy to cause panic in like a country like ours, where there's a flow, a constant flow of people in and out. There is uh, obviously strict controls now, mm. but we have a large movement of um, of people on a daily basis. And if somebody comes up, comes in with a slight trace of it, you know, you and you think how, how rapidly it can move from there, because you know, it, even with with strict precautions and mm. people being covered up, it can still be transmitted. So. Yeah, it is a scary thing. And on that note, someone, uh, I met another a foreign correspondent, a Dutch correspondent, who'd just come from Sierra Leone to Johannesburg. And of course, you can't fly direct anymore. Mm-hmm. So he had to come via Brussels, I think was his route. Um, and he, you know, you fill in that landing card. And that's where they, you know, they ask you, I think it's a special one. And they mm-hmm. say, have you been to any of these countries in the last of this? He said, you know, just come from Sierra Leone. Um the immigration person took it, didn't look at it twice, no, put it on the counter, and he walked straight through. <gasps> Imagine. Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, like, comforted by the fact that, like, you know, that they're really, really strict now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry <laughs> to take that away from you. I wonder um, if that guy then later on, you know, he, I'm sure he'd get into trouble, you know, if it came back later that a person had been infected and he hadn't properly checked the... Yeah, yeah, you'd imagine so. Yeah. Um, you would imagine so. Um, hope so. I actually shook that guy's hand. Maybe that was a bad Simon, idea. Simon, get out of the studio right now. <laughs> yeah. and, on that high note, I think we should end the show. Note. Yes, <laughs> thank you, everyone. This has been the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. Um, you can read all of our stuff on www.dailymaverick.co.za. If you're not doing that every day, you should be. You're wasting your time everywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> The Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com.